program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Okay, thanks. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Good. Um, I thought I'd start off with just a couple of straw polls. Uh, who here has never been to an IKEA store? Okay, it's a very small number. I'll probably about five percent. Um, who here enjoys shopping at IKEA? <laughs> now that's interesting. You're getting about 25% of the audience there. Um, well, I hope to um, sort of end up with a bit of enlightenment about the nature of IKEA because there are a lot of people who go there who don't enjoy it but still seem to keep going. Um, but what I'd, I thought I'd do is um, start off with a bit of science. Now, shopping and the way we shop um, is something that's been going on for a long time. And broadly, I think people find it an enjoyable experience. Um, I'm going to go into some of the reasons why this is the case and, and how it takes place as we go through. Shopping forms the hearts of our cities. And I think that the retail experience, the shopping experience, even if it's just window shopping, um, informs the way we think about um, and look at our cities as we move around them. from the inside to the outside and looking from the outside inwards are two quite different experiences. And I'm going to be talking about the nature of that threshold as you step over from the urban realm into the shopping interior, what takes place. What I'll eventually say is that as you step over the threshold, you exchange a contract with the shop owner. So the relationship between the shopper and the shop owner is one about contract exchange. Let me give you a very simple representation of a little bit of a city. And let's um, do a trick to it. Let's take each line, maybe those are streets, and represent them as a dot. And then connect them to the lines that cross them. So that's the streets that, that meet, that intersect. And then those in turn, and finally that one there. We've now represented a street pattern as what a mathematician calls a graph. Now, a second trick. Let's look at it from this point of view, and let's lay it out in terms of going from street to street to street as you turn corners as you move through urban space. It looks like that. Let's look at it from a different point of view. It looks like that. The intriguing thing is that the same pattern of space is objectively different from different points of view. So from uh, the, the blue dot on the, on the left, the rest of the world is distanced from you, you are relatively isolated, and from the right-hand dot, uh, the rest of the world is close to you, you're relatively accessible or integrated. So we can colour up a map according to the depth, if you like, of everywhere else from here. And you go through the spectrum from blue bits for isolated through to red bits for um, relatively accessible. Now, there are three rules 
um, for retailing that any retailer will tell you. They're location, location, location. And what I'm going to suggest is that the sort of map of accessibility is the thing that gives rise to this property of location that the retailer finds so important. Let's look at London. And this is colouring up on exactly the same method, but with all of these lines, all the streets that you have within the north and south circular roads in this case. Let's actually make it a bit darker in here so you can see this. Is that more visible? Um, intriguingly, the red line in the centre there is Oxford Street. It turns out to be the shallowest and most accessible street in the whole of that map of London. But you can say similar things about the King's Road or maybe the Holloway Road. You can spot them. Now, this is purely an analysis of how the street system of London connects together. Let's zoom in. That's Camden Town. You can see Regent's Park and sort of with all its pedestrian routes through it. Um, and there are the locations of each retail outlet in that little area. Um, two kinds. There are the areas where they aggregate together into a big clusters along the main streets, along Camden High Street and so forth. And then there are the dispersed convenience corner shops off in the back streets. You can do a similar thing looking again at the Oxford Street area. Um, here's the map of Oxford Street and Regent Street, and then that's the map of land use with red in this case is for retail. And you can see that these clusterings are part of what we understand about cities as we move around them. You turn the corner, you're into a major shopping street, you turn off the street into a, a line that is slightly more isolated, the number of shops will drop, you turn a corner again and you can be in a completely um, quiet area devoid of any kind of retail activity at all. Now there are some other facts. Um, if we go out and we count the way that people move around um, in this sort of space, what you find is that the more integrated and accessible a space, the higher the flows of people moving through it, whether those are pedestrians or whether they're vehicles, um, the lower and more inaccessible the fewer people move through. So we've got a bit of a thesis here. The structure of space in the city attracts pedestrian movement. And the reason why location is so important to the retailer is they need passing trade. They need people walking past the door. So what do you do? Well, shops follow people. The way the shops are located in the city um, is an attractor effect in that the retailers are attracted by the pedestrians who are there because of the way the structure of space links together. People are then attracted by the shops, and so you've got a multiplier. And that is why this is an emergent phenomenon. It's something which is quite difficult to plan for until you understand the principles. But once you understand the principles, you can begin to guide, guide, guide them, if you like. But if you take um, a really isolated location and put a shop in it, Essentially, that shop has to do a lot of marketing, handing out very good quality value goods in order to overcome the separation of space. Now, this is something which has always been the case and happens in all parts of the world under different cultures. Um, I, here is some work done by a PhD student of mine, Nazreen Hussain, uh, several years ago, where she looked at the growth of the city of Dhaka in Bangladesh and in particular looked at retail. So in 1952, this is a map, an analysis of the city of Dhaka. 
um, and the sort of black dots in, along some of the streets, those are the retail shopping areas in the old city of Dhaka. As the city grew in 1962, um, the pattern, the city has grown enormously as you can see, but then the pattern of shops has taken up new areas and expanded, and then uh, going on again 10 years later, 1975, uh, it's grown further, um, and by the time you get to 1995, you've got a very interesting and coherent pattern by which as the city expands, new spaces become accessible in the larger city, and those in turn then attract the retail functions, and those in turn attract more shoppers and so forth. What kind of retail is this? Well, in a city like Bangladesh, or in, like Dhaka in Bangladesh, it is relatively unregulated. Um, even if there is regulation, people tend to get around it in various ways. And so you've got a, a relatively perfect market taking place without regulation, an interesting thing. And that makes it particularly interesting for those who want to study how shopping takes place. What uh, Nazreen did was she went out and she surveyed a number of these market buildings uh, that characterize this kind of area. Uh, the, many of these are multi-floor, you know, three floors in this case. They've grown up over many years. They're relatively unplanned and undesigned. Um, but they're designed, if you like, on the ground, so they tend to make sense. She looked in each of them at the different range of kinds of things that were being sold. So there may be areas which are selling men's western clothing or uh, saris or uh, accessories, uh, you know, jewellery and so forth, cassettes and snacks and things of that sort. She then went on to survey a series of the shop owners and asked them what, who their clients were. But even more interesting, she went to survey the shoppers themselves. And she asked them a series of very simple questions. She said, what did you plan to buy when you came here? And they would give a list of things. They'd say, I'm going to buy my husband some shirts. Um, what did you end up buying already? Where else have you gone? And they would give a, a list of things. They'd say, oh, well, I went into the cassette shop and bought a cassette. And then they'd say, where else do you plan to go on shopping at the end of the trip, before the end of the trip? And they'd say, oh, I'm going to get some lunch, or I'm going to buy some more um, clothes myself, or whatever else. This allowed her to split the stated reasons why people came there um, from those that just seemed to happen as a byproduct of them being in the place at all. What was it that was the reason they came from? What were those things which were really impulse purchases? And she managed to do this for different markets, and they have different, different answers. Sorry, these diagrams are, are difficult to read, but the way to think about this is that this one is um, food and snacks. And uh, some people planned to come to this market for food and snacks. A lot of people didn't plan to come to it for that. Um, but people who planned to come for these things never bought them just by impulse. So certain parts of these markets are generator functions. People will come for specific things. Other parts are what are called recipient. That means you come there, you purchase from them just as a byproduct of the fact that you're there already. And what was interesting was that the layout of where things are that are generator functions, they cluster together into big lumps and quite often they all go onto the upper floors. The ones that are the recipient functions that depend on a passing trade separated from each other, 
they colored yellow on this diagram, by and large they separated from each other, and they located themselves in the most accessible areas, so next to the staircase, next to the entrance, and predominantly on the ground floor. And the reason for that is that if you're not the main reason that somebody has come to a particular market, then you need to take advantage of spatial location to give you accessibility, but you also are in competition with your neighbors. So you're in competition with somebody else who's selling a snack because that's just, you know, it's the first snack you see when you're hungry that you buy. If you're the generator function for a retail area, then people are there to buy a particular piece of clothing. What they want to do is go around and compare quality, design, value across multiple different outlets. And for that reason, you aggregate together. So the benefit for the retailer in aggregation and clustering together is because they get a benefit of critical mass, attracting people to this market as opposed to some other market in the city, because they'll get a better range of value and choice by going there. If you think about um, restaurants on Charlotte Street or computer shops on Tottenham Court Road, it's that kind of effect. The benefit of aggregation outweighs the disbenefit of competition. Okay, so let's take a slightly different study. This is the ground floor of Harrods, um, one, of the, one of the best uh, sort of tourist attractions in London, um, one of the most attractive, and they came to us with a problem. The problem was that on a Saturday they get double the number of people through the doors than they do on a weekday, and yet they only make 1.6 as much money. They only get a 60% uprise from a doubling of people. So they felt they had a problem. They felt they had a problem which was that the congestion on the ground floor was so high that they were stopping getting the passing trade, that people weren't moving past the goods because it was just so congested. So we went to study it. We did an analysis of its spatial structure. We found um, isolated areas and more accessible areas. We found um, that it's more accessible on this side than that side of the, uh, of the way in to that particular food hall. Um, and we observed how people moved around the whole of the shop floor, and it makes sense. You know, the, the, uh, for instance, there were greater numbers of people moving through the more accessible side than this slightly more tortuous way around this side. It turns out that the relationship between our analysis of spatial structure and the flows of people is a reasonable relationship. You can predict from spatial structure flows of people around the store. However, what we found was that the flows of people didn't relate to the numbers of transactions. So if you get the point of sale data, um, what you find is that what relates to the number of transactions are the static people, not the moving people. This was novel. It led us to, to be able to suggest back to, the, to the, the store managers that the real problem wasn't that the congestion was stopping people from passing and from moving, that the congestion was leading to people stopping um, or to inhibiting people from browsing. It actually stopped them stopping. You just had to keep moving because there was such a pressure of the crowd behind you that you never had a chance to shop. So much for turnover. 
What about making a profit? Well, some of our most sophisticated retailers are the, are the sort of supermarkets and the large warehouses. And they have wonderful data. Um, you go out and have a look at these supermarkets and um, you can trace around and follow people as how they shop. Here's people who do this kind of zigzagging all over the place. This one is somebody who shops and then does little forays up and down the aisles. To, uh, <laughs> quite often people who shop in pairs do this. One holds the trolley and the other one <laughs> hunts. Yeah? And you can do this with lots of people and you can get a, a picture of the way that, uh, that shopping takes place. Now, it turns out in these kinds of stores that what makes money is not necessarily an obvious thing. Um, you get very high price goods, so total sales value of wine is high. The number of items of wine that are sold is only middling. Similar sort of thing for tobacco. These are expensive, yes, um, and relatively low in turnover. Things like biscuits, very high in turnover, much cheaper, but you make a profit on them. And so there's a, there's a really interesting question that underlies profit that requires you to unpack exactly what the margins are on every, every line of goods. You have to look in the store at where all those goods are located. And you have to look also at, it's all very well people passing through an aisle, but it's no good if they don't actually choose something, if they don't convert into a real sale. So here we are um, with conversion rates. And the red ones are the high conversion rates. Fruit, um, milk, beer, uh, coffee, yeah, uh, more beer. That's just a different way of looking at it. In order to study this kind of thing, it makes an enormous amount of sense to be able to go on and compare one store to another store to another store across a wide range that are all trying to sell similar things. And we had a, an opportunity to do this in a, a study of one of a large kind of um, electronics stores. Uh, they gave us a dozen different store layouts. They said they're all the same. We looked at them and said, no, they're not. They're, they're all quite different, actually. Um, but they gave us very precise point-of-sale data on exactly the way, where they made profit from each line. So wonderful data, actually. The kind of thing you only get through collaborating with somebody who's interested in the answer. And what we were able to say was that across the, that dozen set of stores, there's a relationship between three factors that are spatial in the store and the level of profit that they ended up making. Um, the three spatial factors are a factor called intelligibility, which I will go on to explain to you just now. It's how maze-like or understandable the layout is. The factor of accessibility that I've already described, and the size of the visual field. If you close down the size of the visual field on average and make people be in always in a small space, they get less understanding of what's around them, and that's um, seems to inhibit the profitability of the store layout. So what's intelligibility? Well, um, the sort of little experiment that I use to explain this is take, a, take an area that's designed like a little bit of a city and then give it a bit of a shake on the tea tray um, so that nothing quite lines up. And it looks slightly messier. The white blocks here are considered to be buildings and the coloured stuff is open space. 
and then carry out my various methods of analyzing the depth of the graph from each location, each point of view, and look at the local properties of the graph, just how many other streets cross this one is a purely local property, and how does that relate to where I am in terms of average depth from everywhere else in the graph. And that's a global property. It says, well, how does this space relate to everything I can't see? Intelligibility, we define as the correlation between those two. To what extent does information on what I can see locally give me a good indication of where I am in the large-scale plan of the whole thing? You can design things to um, destroy the relationship between the local and global, and you can design them so that the two correlate very closely. This allows you to, say, to look at where you are locally and predict where you would be in the large scale. It's a very technical description. It's something, by the way, that we find in a whole range of cities from around the world, organically grown settlements, um, as a regular feature. They regularly create this property of correlating local to global. We also find that if you create a, a virtual reality model of one of these and then put somebody in a VR headset and walk them around it, um, my colleague uh, Ruth Conroy Dalton did her PhD on this subject, uh, set them off from here and asked them to find the sculpture in the center, uh, the people in the one that is intelligible get there pretty directly, whereas those who are in the one that is considered unintelligible some of them get there directly, but an awful lot go wandering all over the place, and many don't, never find it. You know, they never get to the target. So, intelligibility is really important in the urban realm and in building interiors because it gives you autonomy. If you don't know where you are, how can you decide where you want to go to? And so, removal of intelligibility, which is one of the things that architects can do and regularly do do, I'm afraid, um, is a bit like giving somebody a lobotomy. It's, uh, it removes your ability to act <coughs> with intention. Now, it's very important for a space to be intelligible if you want to search for what you want, and that's all part of shopping. The last part of this is slightly different. I'm going to talk about intelligibility, but intelligibility of a slightly different kind, and it may, it may be something that's a bit more difficult to get a grasp on. But before I start this, why do we shop? Well, we live in a very material culture, and probably many cultures have been very material for many years, so we're not, we're not that um, out of kilter with our ancestors. Um, objects become part of the way that we present ourselves, um, they're invested with personal meaning, they realise our social networks, we give people birthday presents and Christmas presents to reinforce our social networks. Um, the way we dress and all those sorts of things carry something they say, send messages about ourselves. Um, personal memories in my mother's teapot that I remember from years ago as a material object, the cheapest of cheap, but as a personal thing, really quite valuable. Uh, it's always been like that. King Tutankhamun took it all with him to the other side of the, um, of the sticks or whatever. Um, that's probably wrong, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and we tend to do things with objects in our houses. Um, you know, this is that, that sort of corner of the dining room uh, where I tend to work. Um, but it's got 
the set of shelves that's got portraits of the ancestors, um, various objects that have been gifts one way or another in the family over the years, uh, the things the kids make and bring back from school. Um, hello, Catherine, if you're out there on the internet somewhere. Um, and, you know, there's a chair that I was given when I got made a chair at UCL. The way we dress, the way we perforate ourselves or do our hair or, you know, all those sorts of things, they say things about ourselves, our identity, who we choose to associate with and who we don't. This is very important stuff. Now, a quote. A quote from Susie Steiner in The Guardian in 2005. Uh, when you're inside an IKEA store, you must come to terms with a near-permanent state of bewilderment. Shelves stacked with flat brown boxes labelled with random codes and names. A yellow road which takes you inexplicably through bedrooms when all you wanted were some kitchen handles. And then, when your emotional temperature is rising and you can feel a panicky hotness around your ears, you'll be faced with Ikea's version of customer care. An underpaid teenager, tra uh, trained in psychic disengagement, will tell you they're out of stock. The next delivery won't be for two weeks. No, you can't place an order. You'll have to return to the store. That other query? Well, you'll have to ask somebody in bathrooms, and that's five yards down the yellow road, and the queue's on your left. Now, I don't know if this is very fair, but there's certainly a, uh, a proportion of the population who um, don't enjoy IKEA. Uh, there's another proportion that really do, so let, let's try to get to the bottom of what's going on there. I had a student, a master's student, a few years back called Farah Kazim, uh, who went out to, to study IKEA and uh, she got plans. In fact, she had to draw the plans. She had to wander around endlessly drawing the plans. And she came back and she had analysed them. And if you remember the intelligible sort of city layouts, they tend to have spokes around the hubs of a wheel. So you've got a central area which is really accessible and then various ways in and out of the centre that are accessible and perhaps a bit of the, the rim of the wheel at the outside will be accessible. And we look at the showroom part of IKEA, that's the bit up the stairs when you come in, and what you find is, goodness me, it looks like a really well-working urban system. So my first feeling was the computer's gone wrong. Um, because my personal experience is, it's nothing like that. This was a complete <coughs> shock to me. She followed people around the store, a small number, and <laughs> guess, guess what they do? They, they walk around like this. Um, and you can see the sort of lines of people. There they are. In fact, if you shop in Ikea, all you do is follow people around the store. <laughs> you very seldom find people going the other direction. Yes, just think about it. You do occasionally, but they're always looking very harassed. <laughs> so another bit of technology. Um, my colleague Alistair Turner invented some wonderful software agents, little uh, computerised um, people, if you like, that have vision. And they can see ahead of them with a, a field of view. And the field of view is constrained by objects in the environment. So they sit inside a virtual model constrained by what they can see. And each time they want to make a, a step in some direction, they take a step to a point at random. 
It may lead them to changing their direction slightly because they've selected something over in the right field of view and then taking a couple of steps. And as they move relative to objects in the environment, it changes the shape of what they can see next, and so it cycles on. Let's do this on the IKEA floor plate. Each of them, every time they step on a floor tile, they make it go redder, and every time it, a floor tile sort of doesn't get stepped on for a while, it goes bluer. And so eventually, after you've been doing this for a long time, you end up with a sort of a map of where they've, where the little computer agents with long distance vision of what they can see in their environment have actually ended up walking. And guess what? It's very much like the pattern that we see for real people. Now, it tells us something very interesting. There's a complete distinction between an analysis of space which takes no account of forward-facing vision, of the way we are built into our bodies, if you like, with eyes in the fronts of our heads and a tendency to walk forwards. Yeah, just sort of things that we've evolved with for millennia. And an analysis which does not have that. There's complete disjunction between those two. This is another form of unintelligibility. What they've done is they've taken away something which is very fundamental, evolved into us, and designed an environment which operates quite differently, given that we're forward-facing people embodied, from the way it would happen if you just looked down at it from, you know, from outer space, if you like. It's an interesting thing to do. Its effect is highly disorienting. So what's going on? IKEA is very successful. It's one of the most successful retailers ever, especially for these kinds of household goods. Uh, why do people go there? Well, an eight-pound table might have something to do with it. Very good value stuff. Well designed, actually, and good value. But I think there's something more going on. It's highly disorienting, and yet there's only one route for you to follow. You have to do this zigzaggy thing. Your time allocation is used up in the showroom upstairs before you get given the trolley when you get downstairs. They've changed this recently and let you have trolleys upstairs, actually. It sort of slightly spoils the talk. <laughs> um, by the time you get to the marketplace, you've spent half an hour walking past bedrooms and bathrooms and living rooms and all these things that you didn't actually come here for. They're getting subliminal messages about what goes with what. You get down the stairs, they give you the trolley, you see glasses, and you think, goodness me, those are cheap, and you put them in the trolley. Yeah? And then you go on and you find table napkins, ah, oh, we need those, and put those in the trolley. And you, you know, Before long, you've got a trolley full of stuff that is not the things that you came there for. Something in the order of 60% of purchases in IKEA are not things that people had on their shopping list when they, when they came in the first place. That's phenomenal. So, what's going on? Unintelligibility and disorientation removes your autonomy. They've extended the threshold at the beginning of the store to this whole showroom and use it to remove your knowing of where you are. You have to submit. You can only give in and follow the route that they set out for you because to do anything else is really difficult. In fact, there are shortcuts in IKEA. If you want to go upstairs into the showroom, you can then turn left and go immediately downstairs into the marketplace and start shopping. 
Expert IKEA shoppers know this. <laughs> yes. Part of the reason that they enjoy it is because they, they consider themselves to have expertise in how to shop it. Yeah? It's, a, it's a really good, fulfilling thing. I'll tell you all the trick. If you want to know where the shortcut is, turn around, it's behind you. Yeah, literally. Anytime you want to know where the shortcut is, turn around, it's there behind you. So, submission. First part of the two-part contract. Delayed gratification. After half an hour, you can start filling it, and you do fill it up with stuff. So Danny Miller, my colleague in anthropology, uh, describes shopping as sacrifice and shopping as love. This is perhaps shopping as power exchange. Is it exploitative? Well, everybody's consenting adults. Um, and the IKEA lifestyle frees you from something which is the weight of all of that personal, cultural stuff which we invest in objects. These are just commodities. Thank you, Alan, for a talk I'm sure we can all relate to. We do have a few minutes for questions, if anyone does have them. If you do have a question, this uh, lecture is being broadcast online, so if you could wait for one of my colleagues with a microphone to join you. So, any questions? Dan, just one in front of you. I get why I like shopping in IKEA. I break the fundamental rule, I go in the exit. <laughs> the barriers at the, at the cashiers trying to prevent you do this. So don't look at anyone, just walk down the left of a queue of people waiting to pay. Look like a harassed mother who's trying to find a lost child perhaps, and you're in, just in the way they don't want you. If that's barred, then do as was suggested. You up the stairs, immediately turn left, buy your 50p cake and coffee with glee, and then down the stairs and immediately turn left, and you're practically at the exit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Any more? Louise, we've got right one down at the front. Uh, can I ask about out-of-town shopping malls? Apart from um, the, 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 the parking uh, accessibility, what is special about them that attracts so much attention? Are, are there special design features? 
Yes, I think there are. Um, I mean, out of sound shopping malls are an idea, I think, that cropped up in America, which is very suburbanized. It has um, a great lack of city center urbanity. It's highly motorized, and so being able to park close to where the shops are is a crucial feature. And I think both of those things um, are very attractive. Now, I think you have to separate out the attractions for the landowner or the property investor, uh, the retailer, and the shopper. And they all have different interests. There are certainly major attractions for the property developer in being able to take a piece of agricultural land, uh, convert it to a retail use, because you get an enormous gain in uh, property value just by getting planning permission. There's then a great um, benefit because of what you can do to the retailers. Once you've got them and they've all got to come to your shopping mall, you're a monopoly supplier effectively. And that means once you've got a critical mass of retailers prepared to come to your shopping mall, you've got them in a, in a state in which you can begin to charge rents that they would otherwise not be prepared to pay. Um, of course, all of these things are negotiated. There are competing developers and competing retail malls and so forth. But they tend to try and get themselves a spatial monopoly in, a, in terms of some particular location. For the shopper, it's great because you get a whole lot of comparison goods under one roof. So if you go to Brent Cross, you'll find it's 80% um, is uh, your sort of clothing concessions. It'll have one electronics concession in the form of a Dixon's or a Curry's, uh, maybe a Sony or something quite specialist downstairs. Um, but by and large, the electronics are recipient. They just take advantage of the fact that everybody is there shopping for clothes. The clothes are comparison. And they're just like my uh, Nazarene Hussain's PhD in Bangladesh. They're operating a very similar model. Okay, thank you. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your questions. And if you join me in thanking Professor Alan To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.